Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. My name is Derek Davda. I'm a clinical psychologist. The goal of this podcast is to provide high-quality educational content related to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and, in a broader sense, other psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies. I will be talking with world's experts in this field. We will be talking about all kinds of issues. Hopefully, we're going to have some fun in the process. One thing that I would like to mention right now is that I will not be using any advertising to support this podcast. Uh, by now, I hope we all understand that advertising is at the heart of some of the troubles that we have with the internet these days. The click economy directly extremizes the content on internet. Essentially, it puts tons of garbage in our brains. It preys on our basic instincts, such as fear or awe. I will not be contributing to that problem. So if you'd like to support the podcast, and I'd encourage you to do so, if you find it useful, please uh, visit my uh, donation page and uh, consider making a small monthly donation. This will likely carry the podcast forward. Enjoy. Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast, episode number one. My name is Derek Davda. I'm here with Rick Doblin. Hi, Rick. Hello, Derek. I'm so glad to be here with you today. I am glad that you agreed to do this. I'm really happy. Rick is the founder of Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is the organization that is currently conducting approval research for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And the topic of our conversation today will be MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So we want to make it into a little bit of an introductory kind of overview of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for people who don't know very much about it. Rick, there's a lot we would like to cover here, but could we start with your interview with Tim Ferriss? Sure, sure. So Tim Ferriss, for those who don't know, is a top podcaster with a very large following, and you recently appeared on his show. And he had a he had like a surprised gift for you. Can, can, can you tell us about that? Well, it was an incredible surprise. Um, was it a surprise? Well, um, in the days before, it was a big surprise. You know, I, I knew because we had to re-record it because the surprise kept getting better and better. Um, so let me explain is that we are now, we meaning MAPS, uh, you know, a nonprofit um, psychedelic development company, nonprofit pharma, we're in what's called phase three, which is the final stage of research where you have large multi-site uh, double-blind placebo-controlled studies with the goal to prove safety and efficacy in order to get prescription approval. And for us, it's for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And in March, we had what's called an interim analysis of our first of two phase three studies. And that interim analysis was very positive. In the interim analysis, you either, it, it's, you have an unblinded data monitoring committee that takes a look at the data while the study is still in process and compares the actuals versus your hypotheticals that you used for your statistical power calculations. And right. if your actuals are not quite as good as 
your hypotheticals, then you're permitted to add people to the study in order to help restore your same probability of success that you had originally designed the study with. What that would mean is that the effect size, the um, strength, the magnitude of the therapeutic effect wasn't quite as good as you hoped, and therefore you need to add more people to get statistical and significance. And that, that often happens, but it didn't happen in your case. Not at all, yeah. Not so at we got, all, right. Well, well, let me go back and then we'll get to Tim Ferriss, sure. uh, which is that the FDA has declared um, only two drugs, breakthrough drugs for PTSD. Yes, yes, yes. One of them being um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, which isn't really a drug. It's a drug therapy combination with the emphasis on the therapy. So enhanced therapy is what it is. <laughs> yes, it is enhanced um, we we do use the word assisted psychotherapy rather than enhanced, just because enhanced implies that it's better, and we need to prove that. So maybe one day we will switch we, it. To, which to, you are on the way to? Yeah, do. yeah. So the other drug that the FDA had declared a breakthrough uh, drug for PTSD was a repurposed sleeping pill from around 30 years ago called Tanmaya, and they had their interim analysis tonics pharmaceuticals in february of this year and they were told that they should stop the study because it was futile it was not going to work no matter how many more people they added and they had spent well over a hundred million dollars and all of that is lost because the drug didn't really work so in march we did our interim analysis and what we were told was the best possible news is that we didn't need to add anybody, that we had a 90% or greater probability of statistical significance and at least a medium effect size. And this was if we completed the study as designed, which was for um, 100 people. And the interim analysis took place at 60 people. So once we realized that we are on track for success, likely at least on track for success with a 90% or greater probability, we also realized, and we'd been realizing this for months and months before, that we needed to raise a bunch of additional money. And we actually had set up what we called the capstone campaign, which was to raise a relatively um, remarkable amount of $30 million. Now, that's, that is a large amount. Um, it, for pharmaceutical companies, that's a drop in the bucket. But for a nonprofit, yeah, it's, it's really a lot. So we we developed a strategy of how we're going to raise this thirty million dollars. And the first part of the strategy was that we were to raise ten million dollars from our board of directors and from very close allies. And because we're talking about raising money for phase three and money for commercialization. We don't need to spend it all right away. We can't spend it all right away. We would actually be spending it over the next three years. Um, and so we decided what we would try to do is get commitments for all of it, but the money wouldn't need to be paid for uh, three years. So now, a year from now, and then two years from now, essentially, would be when the money would come in. And so we decided the first $10 million would come from the um, inside round, we call it, the board of directors, and then also from uh, close allies. Then we had hoped for one, uh, the next 10 million to come from a foundation that we were negotiating with uh, to give us the entire 10 million as a matching grant to try to then help us raise the final 10. Okay. Now the foundation that we were trying to 
um, get the matching grant from was the Stephen and Alexandra Cohn Foundation. Okay. They gotten quite interested in psychedelics. They'd given a eight million dollar grant to Johns Hopkins. They'd given a four and a half million dollar grant to USONA, which is the nonprofit working on psilocybin for uh, major depressive disorders. Johns Hopkins being the center, also of, um, a lot of psychedelic research with Roland Griffiths and Matt Johnson and others. Now, what, what happened with our strategy, things were going really well, but what happened with the strategy was that um, it was interrupted by COVID. And so we got a message um, in February that the foundation, because of COVID, were canceling their, their future psychedelic grants, and at least for a while, postponing them while they focused on COVID relief. So that was really disappointing because, again, how are we going to get to $30 million? So... Around that time, though, was when Tim Ferriss and I did um, an interview. And so um, now when we started our interview, you know, one of the first things you said was that the sound worked really well. So when I was going to do this interview with Tim Ferriss, he said he didn't like the sound. And he said, let's postpone. And, you know, I'm going to spend so much time on it. You're going to spend so much time on it. Let's not do this where the sound isn't quite right. And he said, I wanted you to buy, he wanted me to buy these micro, this microphone that I could sort of attach into the computer. So we agreed then we would postpone for a week our uh, interview. And then we said, you know, maybe during this week, we can try to come up with a, a matching grant. And um, one of our close allies, a fellow named Joe Green, who has started, uh, co-founded the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, a bunch of people from tech and from hedge funds and all who, um, and, and other donors, of course, who are um, coming together to support psychedelic research. And so Joe offered a um, $100,000 matching grant. So I thought, great, okay, now we have a 100,000 matching grant and, <laughs> and a week later, we're gonna announce it. So shortly before the um, interview that I was gonna do with Tim, he told me this massive surprise is that he had actually um, decided um, to donate a million dollars. And he'd gotten four other people to also offer to donate a million dollars and that right. he would he would do a five million dollar matching grant. Five, five million dollars. Yeah. But. We only had 90 days. It was like a time-limited matching grant that he did to try to motivate the donor so that we would have, and it, and it was also all or nothing. If we raised 4.5 million, we wouldn't get, wouldn't oh, get wouldn't it all. Get anything. Oh my God. No, no, oh my gosh, speak about pressure. Yeah, yeah, we had to raise this $5 million. So and you did. We went, well, okay, the story keeps getting better and better. All right, so then what happened was that um, we did the interview. And the interview went really, really well. It was an excellent interview. And uh, afterwards, um, I, did, I wasn't aware of this. He got so inspired that he called um, Alex Cohn from the Stephen Alexander Cohn Foundation, um, who he knew from their work uh, with uh, together to get the money for Johns Hopkins, because he had also donated money to Johns Hopkins. And so he spoke to Alex, it turned out, had not read our proposal yet. Um, and so after he spoke to her and he mentioned that he'd raised this $5 million, and our proposal was asking her for a $10 million matching grant, um, she got inspired, even though it was still COVID and they were doing a lot of COVID relief, 
um, she said that she would add five more million dollars. <laughs> Just okay. Yeah. So so now we have a uh, $10 million matching grant. So we re-recorded right. um, a little tiny bit of the interview so that it would be a $10 million matching grant. Before oh, okay. Okay. Right, so then we had 90 days to raise this $10 million. And so in partnership, uh, our fundraising team with the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, we ended up uh, going all out and we managed to raise the $10 million match. So we got the initial, the middle 10 million, and then we'd had the first 10 million from our board of directors and close allies. So we were successful in raising $30 million. That's, that, yeah. Now we had previously raised about $34 million um, in the early 2018 for phase three. So, now, what's happening is that actually uh, tomorrow, which is Friday, uh, October 30th, and I don't, I don't know if I should uh, say these dates. Sure, that, sure. That, that's that's good. It's October 29th today, right? 2020. Yeah. 2020. Yeah. It was so a few days before the elections. Very few days. Very few um, days. Yeah. Um, and it feels like maybe America is emerging from the dark night of the soul, Hopefully. which we can kind of talk about you know, in relationship to psychedelic trips or spiritual trips as well. But what has happened is that tomorrow um, we have finished our first phase three study and we negotiated with FDA because what happened is after the interim analysis, um, then COVID really hit and we went into lockdown and enrollment in our different studies was slowed down, sometimes stopped completely. And the FDA noticed that this was happening not just to us, but to all sorts of people doing clinical research. And so they reached out to us and they said, um, would you be interested in the possibility of shutting your study down early? You know, we will oh. permit, we, we agreed to do two 100 person phase three studies. And you're going to do only and one? They, well, no, we still have to do two, but they said, would you be willing to, um, you know, negotiate with us? Now, the, the problem with ending the study early is that the fewer subjects you have, the more difficult it is to have statistical significance. The more subjects you have, the more statistical power you have, and the more you can detect smaller and smaller effects. So that's why, as I said, with the interim analysis, you know, if it wasn't as good as you'd hope, the effect size, you can add more people. So what had happened to us is that we were facing a dilemma in the sense that um, everything was changing, COVID was changing, the background levels of anxiety and depression were changing. And so we negotiated with FDA that we would end the study early with 90 people instead of 100. And so we uh, treated the last person and got the last data point in August. And so September and October, we've been doing what's called uh, uh, monitoring the study, going all over all of the source documents, the paper documents, the um, electronic documents, um, querying uh, various sites about differences that we you know, needed to clear up so that when the FDA does the audit, that they'll have a clear track of everything. And so we ended up um, doing all of this work. And then we had the final point, which is called data lock, where you say, this is it. This is the final um, data for the study, and we're, we're locking the database. And then we've been doing the analysis. So tomorrow, we're going to find out if the first of our two phase three studies was statistically significant.
Wow. Tomorrow. Wow, Rick. And and the prediction is it probably will be based on your preliminary analysis. Yeah, because going down from 100 to 90 people is not that not that right. much. I mean, if we went from 100 to 40, you know, I'd be a lot more concerned, even though we, we have had statistical significance with studies even smaller than 40. So um, what we're planning to do, we've given the New York Times an exclusive on reporting the results. And because of the election and all that, we think it'll be coming out around November 15th. New York Times. Yeah, New York Times, around November 15th, somewhere around then. Now, the other thing that we're doing is now we are scheduling a bunch of meetings with the donors who gave us money for this most recent 30 million and some of the earlier donors for the first 34 million in 2018. And what we're planning to do is that if the study is statistically significant, then what that means is that we think we have raised all the money we need for approval for the FDA, Israel, and Canada. So in phase three, the FDA wants most of the data from the U.S., but it doesn't all have to be in the U.S. So for strategic reasons, for family reasons, um, what we have is 15 sites in phase three for our first uh, phase three study. Two were in Israel. Two were in Canada, one in Montreal, one in Vancouver, and 11 were throughout the United States. And so because we're collecting phase three data from both um, Israel and Canada, as well as the United States, what happens is once we're done with our, our second phase three study, and if it and the first ones were significant, then we're going to submit the data to the FDA, to Health Canada, and the Israeli Ministry of Health to, for approval in all three countries. What's almost certainly going to happen is that Health Canada and the Israeli Ministry of Health are going to delay until they see what the FDA does. Right, right. Because the FDA is the premier agency in the world for this kind of yeah. uh, you know, drug development research. Um, they've done a fairly good job resisting Trump trying to politicize the FDA, even though he's uh, done a good job destroying the credibility of the Center for Disease Control. And he has uh, damaged the FDA's reputation because they have agreed to do certain things that they shouldn't have done. But they're standing up to him now. So in, in any case, FDA is going to go first, then Health Canada uh, and Israel Ministry of Health will go afterwards. So we're anticipating somewhere around the middle of um, 2022 to finish the second phase three study. And then there's a roughly eight month review process. So depending on when we finish the second phase three study, either the end of 2022, early first part of 2023 is when we hope for approvals. Now, what we're planning to do in these two weeks after we learn if the first study was statistically significant is have a bunch of meetings before the New York Times article with major donors. And what we're going to say, if it's statistically significant, is that we believe then that we will have raised all the money that we need to get it approved. Right. And the next thing that we need to do is we're going to launch a new $30 million fundraising campaign, which is to take MDMA phase three research to Europe and to globalize. Right. So um, we're this sort is... of following the uh, Trump America first strategy. Right. But um, it's not America. It's, it's not America only. And it's not, uh, you know, it's we want 
uh, because we're here, the FDA is the premier agency, but now we want to move to the European Medicines Agency and around the world. And so many exciting developments, Rick, so many exciting developments, and you steep in it right now. You're obviously very excited and a lot of people are watching. A lot of people are excited about this. It looks like if everything goes right, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy will be approved uh, somewhere around 2023. The approvals will start coming in and then it will be available. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, let me say one other thing, though, is that yes. the, in addition to a phase three, where people volunteer to be in the study and, and half of them go into the control group, which is therapy without MDMA, and then the other half go into the group that gets therapy with MDMA, yep. once the study is over, so, you know, Tomorrow, as, as I say, when we're going to find out the results from the first phase three study, and it because it, it's all going to be unblinded, those people that were in the placebo group can go through it again for free and get MDMA with the therapy, but they just have to wait till the whole study is right. over. So we're right. going to be starting that. But in addition to phase three, there's also what's called compassionate access or expanded access. Um, the National Center for PTSD of the Veterans Administration has estimated that there's 8 million people in the United States with PTSD. And there's a whole lot more that have trauma that impacts their lives in negative ways, but don't rise to the diagnosis of a PTSD. So there is, um, uh, as you're doing research and as you're moving into from phase two to phase three, um, the FDA permits um pharmaceutical companies, if they want, and patients in particular, to apply uh, to be able to have access to the drug before it's approved. And because it's not fully approved, patients have to accept uh, the risk because, again, it's not fully approved. And because there's no control group, the data is not used by the pharmaceutical company, in this case, MAPS, the sponsor. The data is not used for the approval. Because, right, because you know there, there's no control group, um, the FDA will look at the safety data, but not at the efficacy data. So therefore, patients need to pay for it themselves. So we have been given permission by the FDA to do um, 50 patients in expanded access to start with, and if that goes well, then we'll be given permission to expand that. So uh, well, I just want to say that it's not clear that everybody has to wait till 2023 right. till it's approved to be in the study. Now, the Israeli Ministry of Health has also approved 50 compassionate patients. And in Canada, uh, what has just happened is that um, we have just submitted documentation yesterday uh, to um, Health Canada. They have made several exceptions for psilocybin for people with life-threatening illnesses who are anxious about it. End of life. Care. Yeah. Yeah. So I think four or five people have been approved for that. And so um, Sean O'Sullivan is the one that I've been working with, who's been negotiating with um, Health Canada on that. And what he um, asked me about is that MAPS, as part of our training of therapists, and I, and I know Derek, you want to do this in a logical order, but yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, that's good. That's good. To you. You're in the middle of it, Rick. Let's okay. go with it. All right. So um, as part of our training of therapists, we believe. Um, and the therapists themselves believe that it's important, valuable, but not essential, but valuable and important that the therapists have their own experience with MDMA. I mean, you, you know, this goes back to the very beginning of psychotherapy, to Sigmund Freud, who developed psychoanalysis. And if you wanted to become a psychoanalyst, 
you had to go through your own psychoanalysis. Right. Um, you wouldn't go to a meditation teacher that never meditated or to a yoga teacher that never right. did yoga. So um, right now, when you graduate uh, medical school as a psychiatrist, um, it's not required that you go through your own psychotherapy. A lot of them are psychopharmacologists. They're, they're trained to adjust your medications. You know, psychiatry has often become now just an arm of the pharmaceutical industry. Psychiatrists meet their patients 15 minutes, uh, adjust their medications, you know, and then don't even really talk to them about their problems. So we have permission from FDA. We applied years ago for a special protocol where we're looking at um, personality factors, various things like that. But it's, it's really the main intention is a protocol where therapists in our training program can volunteer to receive MDMA as a patient. And then they understand what MDMA does. They they get. Um, we have a usually a two. We have always a two person therapy team, usually male female, but not always. And that's one of the most important uh, training tools that we ha that we have. Um, and so, Sean is now trying to get Health Canada to give another exception for a protocol to give psilocybin to therapists as part of their training. Okay. And so, as part of our work, we've done a survey of uh, 79 therapists who've been through our protocol where we've given them MDMA as um, a patient and asked them how beneficial was it to them professionally? How beneficial was it to them personally? You know, did they experience any harms? Um, and so what Sean wanted to have me do is to write a proposal to Health Canada that would discuss our survey results hmm and talk about the importance of uh, therapists getting MDMA, or in, in this case, psilocybin, um, as part of their training. So I just did that yesterday and submitted that. Now, the important point here I want to make, and I, I did make it before, but I want to emphasize it, is that we think that therapists taking MDMA or psilocybin or LSD or any of the drugs that they give to patients should be completely voluntary. And it should never be required. We should never require people to do a drug if they don't want to do that. And so what, what that means is that we believe that therapists who uh, take these uh, opportunities to volunteer for MDMA, or if there are some created in Canada for psilocybin, that they um, will be better therapists than they were before. But we don't believe that you know, every therapist that's taken MDMA or psilocybin is better than every therapist that's not taken it. You know, we just believe that every therapist, you bring in your own qualities as a therapist, and that if you have direct experience with the drug you're giving to people, it will help you be better. So that therefore, people who have never done psilocybin or never done MDMA, therapists can still get good outcomes from their patients, uh, potentially, if they've never done the drug. So we wanted to reinforce this idea. It's only voluntary. It should never be required. We don't want to create like a cult-like thing where everybody has to drink the Kool-Aid, you know, and, and we want to welcome skeptics. We want to welcome people from all different therapeutic uh, traditions to be um, comfortable learning what we're doing and then deciding whether to apply it. But we do believe that uh, most therapists, particularly those that have never done psychedelics, um, do have an interest in volunteering, right. and we've, we've seen that. And one of the strategic reasons that I chose MDMA and then MDMA for PTSD as the drug 
clinical condition combination, you know, more than 20 years ago, we started working on this as the um, strategic most likely way to go forward is that MDMA is more gentle than the classic psychedelics. It doesn't dissolve the ego in the same way. And I think there's less resistance in the fields of psychiatry and psychotherapy for people to do their own experience with MDMA than there is to do their own experience with psilocybin or LSD. So also MDMA is more gentle, as I said. Why don't we talk about that more? Why why don't we talk about that more, Rick? Let's have people who never have had experience with MDMA and don't understand anything about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. First of all, you've done, you've used MDMA a number of times. Could you tell us the first-hand experience of MDMA as you experienced it and as you understand others experience it? You say MDMA is very gentle. Uh, my understanding is that MDMA is also very stable and predictable medication or substance. Uh, so there is not too many surprises with MDMA, which uh, you can't say about LSD or even sometimes psilocybin. Uh, so could you tell about the first-hand experience of the MDMA? What happens to you when you do MDMA? Yeah, well, um, l- let me then share a, a short story about the first time I ever took MDMA, and then then we'll get okay. more broad into it. Um, and we can do some um, sort of neuroscience about how it works mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and what it does. But but I'll just say that um, I learned about MDMA in 1982. 1982. And I was a um, student there. Uh, I was a, um, I'd started college in 1972. That's when I decided to focus on psychedelics when I was just 18 years old and, and uh, reading Stan Groff. Um, and, you know, Stan Groff's brother, Paul, lives in Toronto, who's also a psychiatrist. But um, but I felt like I couldn't really do the work I needed to do with psychedelics. I needed to get grounded. I spent 10 years trying to get grounded, building things. And then uh, and I dropped out of college in the middle of my first year um, in order to really focus on psychedelics and, and get balanced. It took me 10 years to do that. And then I started back to college as a freshman at age 28 in, in 1982. And the first semester... Um, I went to Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, and I did a month-long workshop with Stan and Christina Groff called The Mystical Quest. And while I was there, um, you know, here, I'm interested in learning to become a psychedelic therapist, going through my own psychedelic psychotherapy, trying to bring back psychedelic research. And um, while I was there, a woman named Debbie Harlow came by, and she wasn't in the month-long workshop, but she came to Esalen, and, and she started telling people, uh, and I heard this, that there was a new drug that was called Adam. And this drug, uh, you know, helped you to uh, feel more deeply, helped you feel loving feelings, helped connect you to other people. And, you know, I actually saw a group of people um, sitting in a circle doing MDMA, and they were all talking to each other, and but I wasn't doing it. I was not in the circle. I was just sort of watching, and and I, I dismissed it as something you know more trivial. You know, I'm used to, at the time. Um, you know, when I would do LSD or or other major psychedelics, I would do large doses. Um, you know, the standard dose in '72 um, when I first really started exploring was 250 micrograms of LSD, which is kind of a existential crisis kind of a dose and there's periods of time where you're not really verbal you're not really you know you're processing in a whole different way so i i thought here it is a bunch of people sitting in a circle talking how profound can it be it, it can't be um 
very deep if you're still ego intact and you're communicating with people. So I dismissed it. And um, I like to say that I was um, stupid enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so while I was there in this workshop on the weekends. And MDMA um, wasn't illegal at that time. No, it wasn't illegal. It it was um, the code name Adam was the word that was to describe it as it was used in uh, sort of therapeutic contexts that were kept quiet because this was um, the time that Ronald Reagan was the president. His wife, Nancy Reagan, made the just say no, you know, and escalating the drug war, uh, their main issue. Drugs were the number one national security threat. And so they um, were escalating the drug war. And so the fear was that if this drug atom were, were to be made more public, that it would become illegal. Now, I also learned, sadly, that um, it was also already had escaped the therapeutic circles and it was being sold as ecstasy in public settings, in bars and elsewhere. And it was attracting the attention of the police authorities. So it was clear to me that it was doomed, that, that the legal status of MDMA was doomed. All right, so, so that was my introduction to it. And I felt like I woke up to um, the value of LSD 1972 right after the backlash, the backlash to the 60s, um, 1970 Controlled Substances Act, criminalizing all the psychedelics, and then psychedelic research being wiped out in the U.S. and around the world. So I felt I was late to the party in a sense. I, I, I you know, I, I understood the value of psychedelics after they were all criminalized. But now I'm understanding the value of MDMA before it's criminalized. So unofficially on the weekends, some of us would sit for each other with large um, doses of LSD. Um, there was this young woman who, my age, a woman my age, who um, I was uh, attracted to. Uh, um, and um, she asked me to sit for her for um, an LSD session. I had a girlfriend at home. There was nothing sexual going on between me and this woman, but I, I agreed to sit for her for an LSD trip, her first LSD trip, and it went really, really well. It was just a, a very important experience for her. And at the end of it, she gave me a necklace, this little gold chain necklace that that was really nice, and, um, and I wore it. And so... Um, after I get home um, from this month-long workshop, I'm still wearing this necklace. My, my girlfriend and I um, do MDMA for the first time for so both. So this is your first MDMA experience right now. Yeah, yeah. And what was um, potentially problematic, you know, what is going on here? What's this other woman? She's giving you this present. You're wearing it. You know, it became the discussion about what it was like for me to meet her, to sit for her, um, you know, the attraction, but nothing sexual, all of this. Um, it turned out that it was so much easier to discuss. It just felt like we had um, didn't engage jealousy. Didn't in, you know, it, it was something that I was able to um, sort of very... Um, clearly and honestly discuss it. It wasn't, it just was amazing how we could have what would have been potentially an emotionally fraught conversation, but one that was just beautiful and easy. And other times during the same experience, 
we just started expressing our deep um, love and caring for each mm-hmm. other. And, uh, you know, I, I remember thinking um, and saying that this is not the drug speaking. Mm-hmm. The drug is opening us up to feelings that we really do have, mm-hmm. but that are hard to articulate. Mm-hmm. It also made us less uh, defensive, more wanting to hear what the other really thought. There's a, there's an element of self-love mm-hmm. and self-acceptance to MDMA mm-hmm. that you're sort of reassured in who you are. And so therefore, the dialogues that you have with people, you can be a better listener. Mm-hmm. You really want to hear what they have to say. You're, mm-hmm. you're not so ego defensive and, and trying to steer the conversation in certain ways or you know, it just was miraculous. It was a beautiful, loving mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And it also lasted. So the days afterwards, it, it's, the things that we had said to each other, the things that we'd experienced had, had a lasting effect. And also because it's not such a departure from normal processing, um, we were able to integrate it. We were able to um, sort of deepen our baseline, you could say. Mm-hmm. So I was utterly impressed with how profound the MDMA experience was, how much I had misjudged it by watching with these people just talking in a circle. I didn't really get the depth of how they were talking and how they were listening right? and how, how they were communicating. So I felt like this drug had just incredible um, therapeutic potential. Mm-hmm. And also that because it was on this cusp of um, emerging from being this quiet, uh, kept underground therapeutic drug, so let me just uh, there um, that it was um, in danger, and I thought, okay, now I can start um, getting involved in some ways to try to protect the therapeutic. I would of- like to ask you about that. This is a really nice story. There, I, I just want to recap. During the MDMA experience, some of the things that happen to you is that fear is reduced. Your defensiveness is reduced. Your anger is reduced. Your honesty goes up. Your acceptance goes up. Your ability to listen and be present to another goes up. Your ability to empathically connect with another goes up. So essentially, it sounds to me like in terms of communications and in terms of relationships, this mixture is incredibly positive uh, and has an incredibly positive potential to heal. uh, Well, in this case, you're talking about relationships as well as relationship with yourself. Yeah. Now, let me uh, bring this back to Canada in a sense that there's... um... A, a, a woman uh, researcher, a PhD, Candace Monson, who's at Ryerson University in Toronto. And we had been trying, uh, I'd been trying actually since 1990 to do research with the Veterans Administration. And there'd always been political resistance. And about eight years ago, we finally had a breakthrough with uh, the Department of Defense and the National Center for PTSD, PTSD of the Veterans Administration. And they said that um, they finally would permit one of their researchers to work with us um, to blend MDMA with the therapy that she had developed, the non-drug psychotherapy that she had developed. 
um, but that we had to pay for it. Nobody could come from the VA. People had to come to the study from outside the VA, and she had to use academic affiliation, not VA affiliation. And her name was Candace Monson. And the therapy that she had developed was called cognitive behavioral conjoint Conjoint therapy. therapy. Yes, I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, so conjoint means couples or dyads, where it's a therapy for PTSD, where one person has PTSD, but it affects the relationship. And so you bring both people into the therapy. And so since the, the VA had heard a lot about MDMA being good for relationships and good for couples therapy, they thought that this um, cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy that uh, Candace had helped develop would be a good one to blend with MDMA. And so we did a study where both members of the dyad, the conjoint mm-hmm. uh, part, received MDMA. And we did what's called a, a treatment development study. It was done in Charleston, South Carolina. Candace and Ann Wagner, a student Correct. of hers, um, became um, co-therapists. Michael and Annie Mithofer are our main, at the time, were our, our lead psychiatrist, lead psychotherapist. Again, a husband, wife, male, female team. And uh, Candace and Ann realized that there's an awful lot to do to learn about how to do MDMA therapy. Michael and Annie had taken a course in cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. Candace and Ann then went through our therapy training program, and they decided that they wanted to um, actually keep flying down to Charleston to work with Michael and Annie when they did this treatment development study. And about uh, two months ago, Candace and I presented to the Boston VA. Um, I presented our phase two results and where we were at with phase three. And then Candace presented the results from the cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. And she showed all of the studies that had been done with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy before she had introduced MDMA to it. And she showed what's called the effect sizes. And then she did the same with MDMA. Yeah. And then it turned out that when you add MDMA to cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, the effect sizes are bigger than anything she got before. Right. So now Candace is wanting to do a larger study. So um, in uh, Toronto that would have a control group. And so she's now got a grant in for um, roughly, um, I think, one point two million Canadian dollars. Um, We're not sure if she's going to get the grant. And if not, we're committed to trying to help or raise the funds to do the study uh, in Toronto, because it's one of the um, most effective studies. We hear so much about how the PTSD patients say that um, they're getting the attention, but the person that they're in a relationship with is suffering too in different ways, and they often don't get the attention. And this is, and this is, this specific study actually and my group here in Winnipeg, uh, Enhanced Therapy Institute, we actually have a call for uh, donations. We have donated and we are, because our mandate in the long term is relationship treatment because, because the research that is coming up, coming out of this particular study and uh, glimpse of, glimpses of other studies show great potential for relationship treatment. So, this uh, conjoint behavioral therapy, we should uh, emphasize, addresses both trauma, which is at this point the main focus of MDMA-assisted therapy for the approval, for FDA approval, as well as relationship 
treatment. So it's a very powerful study. So I just want to say that we have done, anybody listening here, we have donated and we encourage everybody to donate to this particular study that you just mentioned, which is a coincidence here. We never discussed this before. And, and, and we have a direct link on our website to, great, to, maps, to maps Canada, to the donation site, to this Ann Wagner's and Candace's uh, specific study. So people, if you want to see research to see if this is going to work in relationships and, com and both trauma and relationships, this is, a, this is the most uh, powerful way to affect change directly. Donate to that. Yeah, I totally support it. Now, the, the other interesting point is that to make drugs into medicines, they uh, to do the research with FDA or Health Canada, uh, you have to be treating a disease. That's what it means to make a drug into a medicine, to treat a disease. However, one of the very best uses of MDMA is in couples mm -hmm. therapy. Exactly. But that's not a disease. So you can't get it approved, not at this point. Right. We can do research with it, but to be, get it approved right. as a medicine. So, so it's the same for, let's say, a personal growth. I want to do psychedelics for a spiritual experience. You know, that's not something no. that the FDA is going to approve or Health Canada won't approve. So the Cognitive Behavioral Conjoint Therapy Project, which is primarily looking at the person with PTSD, is a very important opportunity to look at relationship therapy and couples therapy, because there's all sorts of measures about Excellent. how well the couples relate. And then what that means Absolutely. for us and what, what, what that I think uh, Canada may be, you know, Canada has been the leader for the um, legalization of marijuana more so than the U.S. But what we need also, and as a nonprofit, we're, we're the only non, we're the only pharmaceutical drug development company focusing on psychedelics that has a two-track strategy. All the other companies have a one-track strategy, which is to medicalize through red, regulatory agencies. Our second track is drug policy reform. We think that the drug war is a fundamental violation of people's human rights to explore their consciousness. It's racist, it's used in discriminatory ways, and it's promoted mass incarceration. It's a massive um, counterproductive uh, strategy that isn't really ever focused on reducing drug abuse. It's always had other ulterior motives, which it doesn't uh, pursue very well either. So what we need, well, it has actually done a good job of uh, being used in a racist way. And what we're going to see, we mentioned the uh, election in America. Um, one of the reasons why uh, President Trump has a chance to win is because in Florida, which is a battleground state, Florida is one of the few states in America that if you have a felony conviction, you cannot vote. Now, what happened, though, two years ago um, in the election of 2018 is the citizens of Florida, well over 60 percent, voted to change that and to say that um, if you had a felony conviction, uh, you could vote. And there's like 800,000 people like that. And most of them are poor. Most of them um, would tend to vote Democratic. So the Republican legislature in Florida passed a law saying that you couldn't vote if you still owed any money in fines. Mm. Yes. But but there's no state registry in Florida of how much people's fines are. And there's no easy way to get your fines taken care of. And a lot of these people are poor and can't afford the fines. And then the U.S. Supreme Court 
ended up supporting that uh, idea that it's it's that they could uh, discriminate on the basis of money that it's like a poll tax that uh, unless they can pay this money they can't vote so in any case what this just means is that um, the war on drugs has massive consequences and so the to, to get it back to the Candace Bonson's the cognitive right. behavioral conjoint therapy it's going to be developing evidence on a use that's extremely important. We all care about our relationships. Let's just, let just uh, Rick, let's just recap one thing of what you just said. Um, your twofold mandate, medical, so, so people understand, medical legalization of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, at this point MDMA and yeah, others yeah, yeah. Uh, in the future, is one of your mandates. The other one is to support decriminalization, uh, which is which is a whole other set of issues and questions and et cetera. And I've heard you uh, say before that your strategy is to start with medical legalization because you always have been pro doing it in legal ways, getting, yes, getting yes. this approved in legal ways. I just want to make sure that people understand that there is these two, uh, two streams here and they in my in my books, they have very different set of issues. Very much so. And so just to uh, further clarify, I'll say that the um, end goal for the drug policy reform is a system that we're calling licensed legalization. So it's not what we normally think of uh, legalization. It's not like legalization of marijuana no. or legalization of uh, alcohol. So, for example, if you are a um, drunk driver, and you're driving drunk and the police come along and uh, they um, see that you're driving drunk and they um, arrest you and you're charged with driving under the influence, uh, you can lose your driver's license. But you can still go buy alcohol. And a lot of people who have lost their license buy alcohol and then um, kill people while they're drunk driving, even after they've lost their license. So what I think we need to do is make it more difficult for those people to buy alcohol. Mm -hmm. And the same would be true for marijuana, for other drugs. And for psychedelics also, what we think is that there should be, um, and I, I'm making a conscious parallel to driving, is that when you get your driver's license, you have to, um, when you're 16 years old or, or different ages, different places, but you have to drive in a car with an inspector in the car with you to make sure that you know how to drive. Um, so I think that licensed legalization is going to take advantage of the fact that the medicalization that we're going to be working on will end up with thousands of psychedelic clinics all over the United States, all over Canada, ten, you know, quite a few uh, psychedelic clinics with tens and tens and tens of thousands of psychedelic therapists. And what will happen is that for the licensed legalization, that you go to one of these clinics, if you're interested in doing psychedelics, and you pick which psychedelic you want to do, and you have a, an experience under supervision, and you know what you're getting into, and then you get a license to buy it on your own. And then if you misbehave, let's say you take psilocybin and you decide that um, you know, you're God and that everybody needs to listen to you, and you take off all your clothes and you run down the road screaming and yeah, which which occasionally this is, happens. This is uh, not the best advertising for uh, psychedelic assisted <laughs> therapies, Rick. As, right. Now. <laughs> right. Well, this is about the recreational use. Somebody does does that. Yes. Uns, unsupervised. 
these, these are you, Rick. These are amazing. These are great. Like I love listening to you, man. I I just wonder. We ha I I'm aware of the limited time, and I I wonder whether yeah, okay. we could step back back to yeah. if it's possible back to the to yeah. to trying to uh, explain sure. mdma assisted therapy on a more yeah. basic yeah. level these are yeah. these are great yeah. future yeah. future visions that you yeah. you uh you yeah. draw we, we, in here. we certainly can yeah so so the, to finish that thought though is if you if you get busted for running down the road naked um you know you then um whatever you know penalty there is for that but then you also lose your license to buy the psychedelic and you have to do more education. So, so anyway, it's a licensed legalization. And the difference is that when we medicalize it, um, we will hopefully be able to get it covered by insurance. So for those people that are interested in a journal called PLOS One, P-L-O-S One, O-N-E, which is the Public Library of Science One, it's an open access journal where a lot of people now, scientists are publishing um, and the papers are freely available. Um, we just published a cost effectiveness study of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD that showed that it was cost-effective. So that, that's our effort to try to get insurance companies to cover it. So the medicalization route will end up with, ideally, treating diseases that insurance companies coverage cover, and then the drug policy reform route will end up with creating opportunities for people to have personal growth experiences, to do self-healing, peer support, um, couples therapy, things like that, that, that we can't medicalize. All right. So that's wonderful. Wonderful. I just want to say, um, just a, a couple of things about yourself. I, I, I don't think I want to let you go on that story because I don't think we'll cover anything else if I do, but <laughs> I want to, I want to put the story out there in uh, around 1986, you started maps and, uh, that was around the same time that MDMA was put on schedule one by FDA, which means no use under any circumstances. You make it, you, you take it, you possess it, you go to jail. So, yeah, and at the same time, you, you, you kind of see the therapeutic potential of this drug and you, uh, decide to be an activist and you start, uh, maps at that time. And it took you over 30 years to get any, any traction with this. And uh, yeah. I just want to, I would love to hear that story. That, you know, I mean, if you ever want to talk <laughs> again, Rick, come here. But I want to say Julie Holland once said this about you. She said that she sees you as a little kid on a tricycle <laughs> ramming into a brick wall for 30 some years and just keep ramming into this brick wall until this brick wall starts crumbling. But I want to move, if you're okay, I want to move from that. I want to move from yeah. that. Let's talk about the basics. Let, let me add a 45-second little thing, which is that I did I did start another nonprofit before MAPS in 1984. And that was designed to um, gather the psychedelic community and to um, prepare to defend MDMA once the DEA moved to criminalize it, which they did in the summer of 84. But we'd already been preparing for that. And so I filed for a hearing and a DEA administrative law judge hearing, which we got. And we started doing very well in the hearing. And we started doing very well in the media as well. And that freaked out the DEA. So in the summer of 85 is when they criminalized uh, MDMA on an emergency basis while the, while the hearing was still going on. And then the judge comes around and agrees with us and says that MDMA should be Schedule 3. It should be available to therapists but illegal for recreational use. And the administrator of the DEA rejected the recommendation and put it in Schedule 1. 
And so we sued several times and won in the appeals courts because their rationale was bogus for why they were rejecting the recommendation. Eventually, the DEA lawyers figured it out and they were able to keep MDMA illegal. So in 86 is when I started MAPS because I realized that the only way to bring back the therapeutic use was through um, science, through medicine, through the FDA, and through nonprofit psychedelic drug development, because nobody would invest at that time, because there were so many political obstacles. Which is so, which is a, 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 a great um, a great point to mention. That here's here's a thought. So let's just. I don't think we'll have time to uh, do more research review today. So let's just say that the uh, the breakthrough status that FDA granted uh, MDMA-assisted therapy is a very rare thing. And the definition of the breakthrough status is that it's better than any existing therapies, potentially better than any existing therapies, if the research holds at the same level. This is, this is huge. So if this is the case, if the effect sizes, meaning this is powerful therapy. This really helps. We have we have PTSD. We have one third of people doing three doses of uh, three times dosing of uh, of MDMA. One third of them no longer with one treatment, twelve session treatment, no longer meets the diagnostic criteria. Well, actually, let, let me say that it's two thirds. Two thirds a year later. A year later, right. it's two thirds. Okay, so so the phase two data that we presented to FDA in, um, we had an end of phase two meeting November 29th, two thousand and sixteen. So basically, thirty years from nineteen eighty six to two thousand and sixteen, yeah. and what we presented to the FDA with the phase two data, just to very quickly review, is that we had therapy without um, active MDMA. Yeah versus therapy with active MDMA. And what, these were now, because MDMA is stigmatized, psychedelics are stigmatized, we felt that what we needed to do was work with the hardest cases, the most difficult people to treat. And so we worked with chronic, severe, on average, treatment-resistant patients who'd failed on other treatments, either pharmacotherapy or psychotherapy. Beginning, we required that they'd failed on both uh, pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy. But in the end, we just said either one or the other. But so what, what we showed is that in these most difficult cases with this therapy that you've just described, um, that 23% no longer had PTSD at the two-month follow-up that were in the control group, the people that got the therapy without active MDMA. And what that means is that the therapy itself and the therapists were trying their best to actually help people and that there was a pretty good outcome, 23% no longer having PTSD um, when they failed before and that they're treatment resistant. Now, when we added MDMA, when they got therapy with active MDMA, 56% uh, no longer had PTSD. Oh, 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 sorry. Sorry for that. Um, so... Um, now, what we also do, the, the big question for us, and this is in particular for insurance companies, is uh, does it last? Because this is intensive psychotherapy at the very beginning, but it needs to really um, last in order to be cost effective. Um, and so at the 12-month follow-up, which we did, so at the two-month follow-up, that's where the therapy ends. We don't do anything with people. There's no more interventions between the two-month and the 12-month follow-up. Um, so we can't say that it's all due to MDMA. Maybe they did other therapies. Maybe they um, 
you know, did, did anything that they wanted. They could start stuff new, you know, but what we found at the 12-month follow-up is that uh, two-thirds no longer had PTSD. Two-thirds, right. And two-thirds. And what that means is that people learn how to process trauma and they can keep getting better on their own, that we have sort of turned the turn this around so that what was previously experiences that were too painful for people to process, but also that they were unable to really put in their past, that would come to them in nightmares, that would come to them um, in reminders during the day, um, in triggers, that they would be feeling like this trauma was still happening. It wasn't in the past. They were always vulnerable, that they couldn't really um, get past it, that, that they've learned how to process trauma, and then they can use that without the drug and without the therapy going on. And that's where I said that MDMA is easier to integrate than the classic psychedelics. And that's what we found. So that, that's the data that we presented to FDA that, that got the breakthrough therapy. Now, you know, as I said, though, there was, you know, um, you know, one other drug that was breakthrough therapy, this repurposed sleeping drug. Never went anywhere, right. Never went anywhere. So, so even if it's breakthrough therapy, even in phase three, sometimes you can fail. Um, there is something very interesting happening in that respect that right after, you know, a week or two or four weeks after th uh, the therapy is over, one third no longer meets the diagnostic criteria. A year later, the same group, two thirds no longer meets the diagnostic. So there is something positive happens. And as you say, in terms of uh, trauma and, and integration of those memories and, uh, you know, the traumatic memories have a, a very strong uh, emotional load that uh, makes people avoid those memories. So maybe perhaps when they are integrated more properly, they don't they don't affect yeah. people this negatively. So there was a neuroscientist, uh, Gould Dolan, from Johns Hopkins, that had an article in Nature. Nature is considered to be one of the top scientific journals in the world, along with Science uh, and Lancet. But Nature is is really preeminent. And so this was a study about how it was done in mice so that they could then uh, dissect their brains afterwards. But what they showed was that MDMA stimulates oxytocin. And that not only that, but that the oxytocin stimulates new neural connections. Neurogenesis. Um, well, it's neurotogenesis. So it doesn't, it's not clear yet that it's the birth of new neurons, but it's the growth of new neural connections. So the, the synapses go to more different connections. And so neuroplasticity in, would be a better term. Yes. Okay. Yeah, neuro neuroplasticity is a better term. And that it does it in prosocial areas of the brain. And that helps to explain why the changes can be long-lasting. Right. Because you are actually rewiring your brain. So the same researcher has done another study um, in octopuses. And so uh, this is one of my favorite uh, neuroscience studies. Um, so it turns out that humans and octopuses um, diverged over 550 million years ago. And octopuses have a different kind of brain than we do. They're considered to be very intelligent animals. But we're still a little bit octopuses. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, not, not even just a little. Octopuses still process serotonin. Mm -hmm. And also, they're very solitary creatures, unless it's mating season. Otherwise, they like to be alone. And so what uh, Gould did is that um, 
she we sent her the MDMA for this experiment. And what she did is she um, figured out how to put MDMA in the water to soak the octopuses for 10 minutes in this MDMA-like water, and they absorb it. Um, and she did an experiment, and she showed that normally octopuses will spend, where they have a choice between another octopus and an inanimate object, they spend way more time with the other inanimate object, not with the other octopus. Um, but when you give them MDMA, now they spend way more time with the other octopus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they do it in a way where the octopus and the inanimate object can't move. And so what it shows is that MDMA produces pro-social behavior in ways that go so deep in our evolutionary history that it's Mm pre-verbal. And it's also speculated this is because of oxytocin. The the other point I just want to make is that the FDA has um, required us now if we succeed in adults, our phase three studies are 18 years old or old, older. We don't have an upper age limit. It's not about age. It's about health, cardiac health, various things. So we have a minimum of 18, but no upper age limit for the people that can be in our studies. If we do succeed in adults, the FDA has required us to already agree and worked on a protocol to work with 12 to 17 year olds with traumatized adolescents. And if that works, then we got to go down to seven to 11 year olds. And so there are a lot of kids that are um, complex PTSD, childhood sexual abuse, um, violent parents, uh, you know, physical abuse, refugees, um, natural disaster. There's a lot of kids, young kids that are traumatized as well. And so what we're going to be exploring and and the, the big theory is that the sooner you can treat people to the trauma, the easier it will be to treat them. It won't have solidified into certain kind of distorted personality patterns, or they won't have lost opportunities for connection. So the sooner that we can um, treat people to the trauma, the better. This also has to do with veterans. Why work with veterans if we can work with active duty soldiers after they've been in a traumatic situation? Um, And I think that what it suggests is that um, what MDMA does you know, through the oxytocin, but also it stimulates um, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine uh, in a complex cascade. Also, uh, hormonal release of the oxytocin and, and prolactin. And what it also does is that it reduces activity in the amygdala, the fear processing part of the brain. And that in the prefrontal cortex, where we think logically, um, it enhances activity. What, what we see under the influence of MDMA is that people's memory for the trauma is enhanced, that a lot of the memories have been so painful and so suppressed that they're not consciously aware. But when the fear part connected to the memory is reduced, then people can remember more of mm-hmm. the trauma. And so you're sort of bringing that up to the surface and then people can process it and it's called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. Okay. So that when you process it, now I also want to um, emphasize something else, which is that um, a lot, some of the people, not not a few, have said in our studies, the patients have said, "I don't know why they call this ecstasy." So it's not why. Well, you just take a pill and everything feels better. People actually go through some very difficult emotional experiences, physical sensations, crying, shaking. It's its like 
the trauma that was when it was happening to them, people didn't know how to respond or they, they couldn't or they had to focus on survival or they just uh, dissociated. Right. You know, various strategies to happen when, when you're being hurt and traumatized. And so what the MDMA does is it permits these dissociated memories or memories that are um, have been submerged to come to the surface and you can experience them, you can um, express them. So it's not fun. It's often very, very painful, um, but it's like grieving <laughs> after somebody has died. When you can finally cry, you can right. let out the emotions. And MDMA does increase connectivity between the amygdala and the hippocampus so that you're able to take these memories that have never been able to really um, been processed and put in the past. Right. You can put them in the past. And so when it's, the memory is reconsolidated, uh, and just to say that what we understand now about memory is that um, it's not like you take the memory like a book off the shelf, you read it and you put it back. You have to reprint the right. book in a way. You, we're, we're changing our memories over time, which explains a lot about why we remember things the way we wish they right. were instead of the way they really were. But what's happening is that when you're experiencing these memories, these traumatic memories um, under the influence of MDMA and you're, you're releasing them and you're able to put them into the past um, and you're when you reconsolidate the memory, you've enhanced the memory, so it's a better sense of the memory, but you've also um, replaced the fear right. valiance to the memory with something that's peaceful, it's in the past, I accept it, it's part of my story. So then, after the therapy, when you remember the trauma, it's not like you've created a new memory, but you've, right. you've created a memory that now is attached to a sense that you know, I've dealt with it. It's peace. I, I can I can approach it peacefully. It's part of my story. It's in the past, but it's not defined. It doesn't trigger the fear. It doesn't trigger the avoidance in the same way. In a sense, what you're saying about the trauma part of MDMA treatment is a it's essentially exposure therapy has been the main paradigm for trauma treatment. So what MDMA does in a it simply allows exposure treatment to be way more effective from what we understand so far. Yeah. Now, not only that, but I'll say that Edna Foa, who developed prolonged exposure, um, and one of her main uh, students, protégés, uh, Barbara Rothbaum, who's at Emory, um, as part of our effort to um, educate the field of PTSD, um, we are working with both Barbara and Edna. We are paying for them um, to do small treatment development studies to blend MDMA with prolonged exposure. Because one of the challenges of prolonged exposure is that it re-traumatizes some people. It's very, very painful for people to recall these memories. That's why they're stuck in PTSD. What we've shown, and not we, but what other people have shown with um, neuroscience studies, with fMRI and other brain scan studies, is that MDM, if you have PTSD, you have increased activity in the amygdala. And you, and you have reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex. You can't really think logically. The, this kind of the triggers happen even though you're not in that same environment, and so also it diminishes activity in the in the hippocampus uh, between um, you know long term memories and the amygdala. So MDMA reverses that. It decreases activity in the amygdala, increases activity in the frontal cortex, and increases connectivity between um, the amygdala and the hippocampus. So. Uh, some people have said in our study, um, PTSD changed my brain and MDMA changed it right. back. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. And then on the relationship, healing relationship front, the logic is slightly different, I think, because, uh, I mean, trauma is a part of the logic. But if we look at oxytocin, from what I understand, oxytocin is a bonding hormone. It's the hormone that wants, uh, makes you want to be close to people, makes you uh, much more uh, vulnerable and responsive to the social cues, uh, etc. And there is much more oxytocin that we, we have much more oxytocin when we are young, during our young years, during up to adolescence. And that's where we develop our rela main relational attachment patterns. And then what happens is that uh, if we go through trauma, if we experience abandonment, neglect, humiliation, uh, we, ha we then develop uh, attachment patterns that do not serve us very well because they actually make us re-traumatize us. And a lot of people are unaware, of course, naturally, we're unaware of those patterns. And we go through our life repeating those patterns because oxytocin production goes down, there's uh, oxytocin does both the bonding and as you say, it makes, it enhances uh, the building of new uh, neural pathways and connections. So then we just kind of repeat ourselves in, in those patterns for the most part, for the most part. So the idea is that when, as an adult, when you, um, when you do another another little point here is from that study by Gold Dolan is that you can't administer oxytocin directly because it does not cross blood brain barrier. So, but MDMA stimulates uh, the production of oxytocin. So it's important to to know that. And then when you are an adult and you do a therapy that has a relational component. And I, I bet you that PTSD therapy has a relational component, even when it's oh, yeah, individual because you are with therapists, etc. You experience new healthy ways of connecting with people. And now that new, that's, that's what I meant previously, that new memories are formed in that way, that now you have the memory of a healthy relationship and with all the afterglow, uh, oxytocin afterglow. By the way, the, the levels of oxytocin from that particular study that you mentioned by uh, Goldalen don't go down to the regular levels for a month. So there is a month of just purely chemical afterglow, but then there is the behavioral afterglow that, that you've been talking about. So this, this kind of story, do you want to add anything to this kind of story of oxytocin and relation, relational healing? What do you... Yeah, well, what I want to um, go to just for a second, and, and this will be related, is that we use a two-person therapy team, often male-female. And that's because most of us in our life at certain points are going to experience trauma. But most people are resilient to some extent. And those people that tend to develop PTSD after a traumatic experience, most but not all, have had prior traumas, particularly childhood right. traumas, which you said has changed their relational patterns. And so the reason that we've liked a male-female co-therapy team is that a lot of people have not had well-functioning parents that were able to model good behavior and to provide well, safety you know, and nourishment. Yes. And, 
Yeah. So that what we find is that a lot of people now, one of the problems with prolonged exposure is you're supposed to pick one trauma called the index trauma and go over and over and over that. So you get desensitized to it. But a lot of those people who have this index trauma, let's say it, it occurred in a war or it occurred, you know, they have these sequence of traumas as they were uh, growing up. And so what we find is that uh, the male-female team can recreate for people sometimes things, parental support that they didn't have when they were young, and that that can be very healing itself. Now, we have had, like with Candace and Ann, when they wanted to work um, and learn about uh, MDMA therapy and combine it with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, um, they went down to Charleston, as I said, to work with Michael and Annie. And so sometimes in that group, we had two female therapists. One would partner with Michael, one would partner with Annie. So it's not that you need a male-female team all the time, but but it's because of a lot of these childhood wounds and that you can reestablish you know, healthy relational patterns um, that you didn't um, have when you were, uh, necessarily when you were growing up. So that's our preferred model, and we do find that people have these sequences. And consolidate those memories and then act in different ways in your life and get a feedback from the world and from other people that makes make gives you actually what you need. Yeah. Now, the, the other, I think, thing that's very important to say is that... Um, we have worked with people who have had complex PTSD from decades before, and they're still able to get better. We've worked with PTSD patients who had PTSD from Vietnam mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who are still able to get better. So that even though we have these sort of ingrained patterns of response that are dysfunctional, that there is still hope for healing. And so I think that's just important for people to understand that, that no matter how long you've had it, um, it is still possible to heal. Rick, I have a question. So do you have stamina to go for another another 35 yeah, minutes yeah, or yeah. so? Yeah. Well, that I don't, 15, maybe okay. another 15 So because there's minutes. a, uh, okay, so let's just uh, uh, quickly uh, go back to the, to explaining to those who don't know the structure of MDMA-assisted therapy very quickly. One point that I find very, very important is that you have, it's it's a very new form of therapy. There hasn't previously been a psychotherapy that was combined with medication. Uh, you do your medication, you do your psychotherapy. They are not necessarily combined. Here we have a, a healing substance, uh, and then the psychotherapy is de designed around the properties of the substance. And we have, uh, for a reason that hopefully we'll get into discussing, we have a, a team of two therapists and we have a prescribing doctor. So there is a, a team working with you. So the, the structure of this therapy, just for people who, again, are very new to this, I like to make a, kind of a four points here because screening is a very important point. So uh, first it's screening, meaning are you a good candidate for this therapy? You could talk about that a little bit more. Then you have preparation sessions. And usually there is a, maybe three preparation sessions where you actually prepare for the dosing. Then there is dosing which is a long, several-hour session, and then there's the integration session. And this form of therapy is, is, it's, uh, is often referred to as integration therapy because the point of this therapy is not to so much to have the experience, although some will argue that the experience itself is a wonderful thing, but the point of therapy is to integrate the insights and the gains that 
happen in the during the experience into everyday life. So I just want to make these few points. Do you want to add anything to this? Yeah, yeah, very much so. So uh, first, first, let's just talk about one of the um, what's considered to be one of the very most important developments in psychiatry in the last 30, 40 years has been the development of ketamine for the treatment of depression. Now, uh, the, the isomer S ketamine has been approved for the treatment of depression, refractory depression. Now, the problem there is that the way ketamine was approved was without psychotherapy, like a chemical electroconvulsive therapy. And what's uh, the way that that was approved is because first off, uh, Janssen and Johnson and Johnson, the pharmaceutical company, Janssen is owned by Johnson and Johnson, that they don't understand psychotherapy. You know, pharma companies they understand pharmacotherapy, but they don't understand psychotherapy. So they approved ketamine without psychotherapy, but the results fade very quickly, and then people keep needing repeat sessions of ketamine. Sometimes people can get over long-lasting patterns, but. Um, but it turns out that that was a designed to maximize income to the pharmaceutical company. You know, when you provide it without the integration, without the sort of focus on the subjective effects and just rely exclusively on the pharmacological effects, doesn't work as well. And so lots and lots of the ketamine clinics that have been established are now combining it with psychotherapy. And there will be some studies combining ketamine with psychotherapy with ketamine without psychotherapy. And these are not unfortunately funded by the pharmaceutical company because they don't want to find out that you know ketamine with psychotherapy works um, better than ketamine without. So what we are doing is something novel, which is uh, you know psychedelic enhanced or psychedelic assisted therapy. And so the part I'd like to say first off the screening. So we in our research. Um, what we have found that there's very minimal physical problems from MDMA. Um, there is an increase in blood pressure, a slight increase in temperature. Um, you know, people may have heard that ecstasy users who take it at parties sometimes overheat and, and die from hyperthermia. That does occur. Often it occurs in combination with alcohol, without adequate fluids in hot environments. We don't see that happening um, in clinical settings. Never has anybody ever overheated in a clinical setting. Uh, they're not dancing. They're not physically exerting. We, we give them uh, drinks with electrolytes. Um, so we also find that uh, there are slight uh, blood pressure increases. So in the screening, we exclude people with hypertension. Um, if they have controlled hypertension, then we just need them to do a stress test. And if you can climb a couple sets of stairs, you're probably fine. Um, we exclude people with uh, you know, actively suicidal, although we are unlike most studies of PTSD that, in that we will enroll people that have previously attempted suicide. You just can't be actively suicidal at the moment. So again, this is part of our effort to work with the hardest cases. Um, we do um, exclude people that are bipolar. We exclude people that are um, schizophrenic, although... There is interest in uh, Columbia University in New York, um, several teams there, um, including one, who, uh, the head of psychiatry there, who used to be the president of the American Psychiatric Association, Jeffrey Lieberman, is interested in studying MDMA for schizophrenia. It's just that that initial project should be done on an inpatient basis. 
where people can be observed before and after more carefully. We do work on a outpatient basis in a sense where um, people are living at home. They do come in for the MDMA session and then it's an eight hour session and we ask most people to spend the night at the treatment center and then they to rest and regenerate and then there's integrative therapy the next day. So we also exclude people with borderline personality disorder. It's not because we think they can't get better. And we have seen uh, uh, situations where people with borderline personality have been able to get better, but they often need more than three sessions. So in a rigid phase three study, we're limited to what we can give. So, so the screening part is very important. And because of the screening, we've had an excellent safety record. And we think that um, we also do exclude people that have had epilepsy. Um, there's a remote chance that uh, MDMA could tri trigger an epileptic seizure. There's, there's a bunch of people that have epilepsy that have taken MDMA without having a seizure. But, and again, the basic idea is that the initial studies, the exclusion criteria, the screening, you are being very careful. And then as you move forward, you expand the kind of people that you enroll in. And, and in an expanded access, the compassionate use, one of the purposes there is that you get more what they call real world data. You can start working with people with other safety issues that you might've excluded in phase three and you monitor them carefully. So the screening process is very important. What we've also found is that um, the most important factor in psychotherapy outcomes in the research, we haven't found this, but, but the literature has found that the most important factor is the therapeutic alliance more so than the school of therapy that people are delivering. It's if there's trust, if there's a safety sense. So the screening process and then the early preparation process is designed to build the therapeutic alliance so that this, the preparation process is that we uh, the therapy is three MDMA sessions, three to five weeks apart, more or less a month apart, eight-hour sessions, as I said, with a two-person team. And in most cases, people spend the night, although that's optional. And then there's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, three before the first MDMA session for um, preparation to teach people about MDMA, to teach people about um, what the therapy is like, but also for the therapist to understand the patient and what their trauma history was like and, and to build this therapeutic alliance. Then we have the actual dosing session. And so the, the operative therapy, now for those people that are interested in our treatment method, we have posted the treatment manual on the MAPS website for free for everybody. And you look at it, you, you go to uh, MAPS, M-A-P-S, MAPS.org, and under research, you go to MDMA and under click on that. And at the bottom of that page, there's a line that'll say treatment manual. And we call our treatment approach um, interdirected therapy. Prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, they're very um, scripted in the sense that there's certain lessons that you need to learn at each session, there's certain exercises, there's certain homework, there's certain procedures. So what we've found in the actual dosing session which we call, as I said, interdirected, is that we are not trying to impose an order on what happens. Um, we believe that there's this uh, innate inner healing intelligence. Now, we all know that our body has that. 
You know, you, you scratch yourself, your body heals. There, there's this kind of move towards keeping the order of our body intact. And our body does that at uh, below the conscious level. We don't have to will it to do this or that. We believe that there's something similar with the psyche and that what emerges into awareness, um, there's an order and a logic to it, but it's a, more of an emotional order and logic. And it's not something that we as therapists necessarily know. We don't use the word guide. We, we're not guiding people because they are their own best guides. They, either they or their, their sort of their psyche knows so what they need to address. Some people will go directly to the trauma. Some people will go to childhood trauma. Some people will go to happy events to gather strength and then they go do something difficult. So of the eight hours, people are lying down uh, part of the time. They're listening to music with eye shades on. And so with MDMA, around half the time, and again, it varies as to when or exactly what proportions, but around half the time, people are having their own inner experience. And the therapists are sitting quietly and are looking at uh, body language. Are they resisting? Are they tight? Are they letting it go? You know, um, about every hour or so, they'll check in and see how they're doing. Or, or there can be physical release. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, who's a PTSD um, psychiatrist expert, has written a book called The Body Keeps the Score about how trauma... Now, he's the principal investigator of our Boston site. A lot of times what happens is that memories that are too painful for conscious awareness come to us through our bodies, through pains in our bodies. And, and so you need to kind of let the uh, bodily, so people talk a lot about somatic therapy, you know, that, that it's anchored in your body. So there's a lot of somatic release, emotional release, all of this, but around half the time, people's eyes are closed, listening to music, and they're sort of healing themselves in this incredible kind of metaphoric, poetic imagery flow. The other half of the time, they're speaking with the therapists and engaging in dialogue. Now, with psilocybin or LSD therapy, because it's nonverbal more so, because there's more ego dissolution, it's around 80 or 90% of the time people are quiet listening to music and 10 to 20% of the time, sometimes even less, that they're talking to the therapists. Now, there's another fundamental difference that I think it's very important for people to, to know about in the dosing sessions, which is that in the work with the classic psychedelics, you know, LSD, psilocybin, um, ayahuasca, mescaline, um, iboga, um, there's been in the 50s and 60s when the research was flourishing, and then now even more, there's more research now than there was then, there's been a very consistent finding, which is that the depth of the mystical experience is correlated with therapeutic outcomes. The more this ego dissolution, the more the sense of unity, the more the sense of connection, um, when you're working with people with uh, depression, um, certain kinds of anxiety, um, substance abuse, uh, fear of death, you know, all of these things that this kind of mystical experience that's got uh, transcendence of time and space, sense of unity, sense of connection, beyond ego, that the depth of that experience is correlated with therapeutic outcome. That is true for um, what we see coming from the classic psychedelics and the research both in the 50s and 60s and the more modern research. However, with MDMA, we use the same measure, the mystical experience questionnaire that's used in the other research with classic psychedelics, and we do not find a correlation 
between the mystical experience and therapeutic outcomes when it comes to MDMA for PTSD. And I think that's very important for people to understand because I think what it means is that when we talked before about the neuroscience and about this idea of um, memory, fear extinction and memory reconsolidation, that, that you're somehow or other able to process fearful memories and then you store them in a different way so that with, with a different kind of memory, emotional valence to it, and then when you recall it afterwards, um, you can recall it with a sense of peace, that that requires an intact ego and a memory of, of the traumas. Now, we are, um, and so that's why I think that the mystical experience is not a key to therapeutic outcome when it comes to MDMA and processing trauma. Um, now, there are going to be studies with ayahuasca, with MD, with uh, psilocybin for um, PTSD, with ketamine for PTSD. Maybe in those cases, they'll find a correlation between the mystical experience and uh, therapeutic outcomes from PTSD. But in MDMA, we don't. So we don't steer people to a mystical experience. We don't do anything like that. We, we, we support the emergence in emotions in their body and noise and sound and tears, whatever is emerging. So that is the essence of a therapeutic approach. And then the integration process is key because I would say that the difference between um, recreational use of psychedelic drugs and therapeutic use is that in recreational use, what's happening is that people are are looking um, for an experience in the moment. You know, this is going to be fun. They're, you're, they're looking for an experience in the moment, but they're not thinking about how do they change their baseline. In, in, in a therapeutic thing, the experience in the moment is important, but what's most important is what you bring back from the experience and how you change your behavior without the drug. So, yeah, so so I, I'd say one of the, the explanations, too, of why for the last several decades it's only been nonprofit pharma that's been looking at this, it's only a few years that there's been for-profit uh, new companies trying to look at this, is that um, we're not trying to make people um, use a drug uh, every day for the rest of their lives. Our model is completely different. We want to do short-term, profound, deep interventions that make a change and then through the integration process, make it so they don't need the drugs anymore. So we're not trying to maximize sale of the drug. We're not trying, we're trying to maximize therapeutic outcomes. So the integration process is a, is the fundamental and crucial step for anchoring what happens during the dosing sessions and to make it build into long-term change. So that's wonderful. Uh, Rick, I'm very aware of your time. I know that we need to wrap it up. I have a whole bunch of ethical kind of questions. I would love oh, let, to. Let's talk maybe, about maybe, that. Maybe we should, you know what? I don't think we can do it right now because uh, unless, you know, you have half an hour, we can. But if I you, don't have half an hour. But, but uh, what, what I'd like to say is that uh, if you want to ask me the hardest ethical question, let's talk about that now. And then, yeah, we can get together at another time to talk about. Okay, issues. so before we go into ethics, I was thinking about the question of about messaging, about public education, which is, I think, a very important issue. In this interview, I noticed that you have been talking a lot about possible futures. At some points, my reaction was like, oh, 
that's not a good messaging when you start talking about children or you start talking about people going naked. You're just being honest too, right? But I think what I would like to do, you know, whether it's with you or with some other people in the community, is to come up with what is, if these therapies, in fact, come, research shows that these therapies, as powerful as they are, uh, then, then how do we actually convince or educate more conservative, because we're not talking to, hi to hippies, how do we educate uh, in the most objective way the public that is more conservative and very drug-weary, partially because of the drug war and all the propaganda that has happened. So that's, I think there has to be a set objective messages. So that's sort of like an, uh, one agenda that I think would be really good to just stick with a few basic messages that are coming out of research. And one variable here, I think, is to stick to what's going on right now, you know, in the research and extrapolate from there. What, what do you think? Well, let me say that there's also the question of the messenger. There's the message and then there's the messenger. So, you know, because we're getting more sophisticated, because there's been a lot of um, drug policy reform efforts with medical marijuana, marijuana legalization, now with uh, making uh, mushrooms lowest enforcement priority in different areas, there's been a lot of public opinion surveys about psychedelics. So what we've discovered from these focus groups and surveys is the most powerful messenger is a patient that's been through the therapy themselves. So as far as sort of educating people, we need to have um, patients speak. Um, that, that's the, the most powerful, more so than data. Stories and patients more so than data. Um, the, the reason that I talked about children, I just wanted to um, say that the hot button of the drug war, it used to be that the drug war started by Nixon and others was about persecuting um, people that were challenging the status quo. What uh, John Ehrlichman, who was the domestic policy advisor for Nixon, said that uh, the Nixon White House, the two main enemies were the civil rights movement and the hippies. And that they were, the hippies were uh, big involved in protesting. Hippies are so dangerous. Hippies are so dangerous. Yeah, they, they are. <laughs> and they were challenging the Vietnam War. So the repression that came down, Ehrlichman said that um, we knew we couldn't um, criminalize protests, but we could criminalize the drugs that these groups were using. And then we could use the drug laws to suppress them, to arrest them, to break up their meetings, break up and arrest their leaders. And that, of course, we knew we were exaggerating the risks of these drugs. So that. That was the original cause of the backlash, was this sort of political counterculture messaging. What's, what's now driving the drug war is um, fears of parents about their kids. We see that, um, you know, that's been the shifting narrative. Oh, we have to protect our kids from drugs. And so that's why I, I make a point of mentioning that the FDA is requiring us to do studies in adolescents or in young children and that people have a lot of sympathy for suffering children. So it's, it's, it's a two-edged sword, you could say, because, yeah, we are talking about children. But at the same time, what um, we're basically saying is that um, these tools can really help children, we think, in a way that doesn't turn them into MDMA addicts, you know, that doesn't start a life of uh, drug use. And it, 
We don't see that in the adults, that those people that use MDMA um, in therapy go on to become ecstasy addicts or try to seek it out much on their own. And so I, I do think it's important to talk about um, the, the future research in children only because um, it, it does go into um, people's prejudices. And I also say as a, um, from the licensed legalization position that it should be illegal for um, minors to use these drugs unless they have the permission of their parents or guardians. And that's the way the traditional societies that have integrated psychedelics successfully, um, it's, it's in the family hands rather than in the government hands. And, and what a lot of people don't know is in the United States, we have 23 states where the laws that criminalize alcohol use by minors have what's called a parental override, that if you, were, you can give alcohol to your kids if you want to. And, and so we want to sort of get the government out of it and get the families to be sharing this information. So I think what, what you're saying about the message and uh, the messenger is very important and sticking to where we're at is got a lot of value. So where we're at is definitely persuading. Very promising. Very yeah, persuading promising. regulatory agencies um, with data and evidence and we have a bipartisan group of funders and we have a bipartisan group of um, patients. You know, a lot of the vets um, have been Republicans. A lot of them have stayed Republicans. You know, not everybody becomes uh, a hippie progressive after going through psychedelic therapy. Um, and so I think this idea of mainstreaming um, is really important. And I'll just share one thing that, that I, I think was so exciting, which was that um, this is now about uh, three months ago, uh, uh, three and a half months ago, uh, there's a medical school an hour outside of Boston called uh, uh, University of Massachusetts at Worcester, and they have a, a medical school there. And the psychiatric residents um, invited me to be the lead speaker of a lecture series that they wanted to um, start on psychedelics. And I was super excited when I got their invitation, because what I knew is that the, the current president of the American Psychiatric Association uh, was a faculty member at uh, UMass Worcester. And so I said, could he, Jeffrey Geller is his name, could he be the speaker um, after my talk as part of the discussion? So I would give the talk and he would be a part of the discussion. And so he agreed to do that. Um, Tufts Medical School, which is also here in the Boston area, the head of that psychiatry is Paul Summergrad, who also used to be the president of the American Psychiatric Association. And I asked if he could join the discussion after my presentation, and he agreed. So we had me and the current and former president of the American Psychiatric Association, and we all agreed that psychedelic psychotherapy is going to be the wave of the future, and it's going to have a big impact on psychiatry. And so I, I think the uh, official world of psychiatry and psychotherapy is, is really opening. opening up. Yeah. So interesting, interesting. I was just, let's stop for just one moment uh, at this. The same substance that was put on Schedule One, meaning can't use, can make, can't, can't possess, evil, evil. The same substance, if the research results hold, is going to turn up to be turn out to be in combination with psychotherapy, one of the most powerful medications. Yeah. That we yeah. Know. Now, what that points to is that these are just tools and it's how they're used that makes the difference. And I think one of the key problems of the drug war 
has been that we've made certain drugs into bad drugs, and we've ascribed qualities to these drugs that are independent of the relationship we had with them, and which is the fundamental misunderstanding, that it's about the relationship. You could say that a, that a knife can be used by a, a murderer to kill you or a surgeon to save your exactly. life. Exactly. So that these are just tools, and how they're used is what determines their value. And that's where the, the clinical and ethical issues come yeah. in. And you already talked about set and setting. We don't need to talk. We don't have time. We, you already talked about toxicity, which, you, you know, you we don't have to. There's two other issues that I'd like to bring uh, quickly throw at you. And you're probably going to answer this very quickly. One is it is a powerful mind altering uh, medication. How do you protect from uh, abuse by potential abuse by therapists, because you know people who are on, the, on that medication might develop way more prone to develop loving attachment feelings, including towards the therapist that they spent eight hours uh, in the session with. How do you protect from that? A separate question, and I notice it's not outlawed in your ethics guidelines. The question of therapeutic touch. Touch. Yes. Yes. So. Um... Part of our approach, the two-person therapy team, is designed to uh, prevent those kind of abuses from taking place. Uh, they're more likely to happen when there's a one, one therapist for one patient. Um, also, at least in the research, everything is videotaped. We're not quite sure if in the future um, there'll be videotaped post-approval, but um, you know, it's not as reliable of a way to reduce abuse as two persons because a lot of stuff can happen off camera. Um, but I think that's very important. And I think the other part of that is the training that we give to the therapists. And we see that that kind of sexual abuse that you're talking about happens a lot of times, uh, too, way too many times, I'll just say, in regular psychotherapy too. So it's not unique to psychedelics, but we have to be especially careful. So we're going to have especially a Especially careful, though, for sure, because of the psychoactive properties of an MDMA. Yeah. So we're, we're going to be... Um, having a patient bill of rights, we're going to be having complaint lines, we're going to be having all sorts of things where we can gather information um, about that. So I think that that's really the, um, one of the solutions that we'll have towards trying to, you know, deal with this idea of, um, you know, sexual abuse of, of the patient. Um, now, your other question was? Ther therapeutic touch. Their touch, yeah. Okay. So, um, because so much of it is somaticized, um, there is value in therapeutic touch. And sometimes, um, you know, the, the logo of MDMA, and, and I don't know if maybe when you show it, the logo of MDMA is two hands. Um, you know, so it's about um, humans. It's not about, it's got a psychedelic background, but it's two hands, about people helping each other. So sometimes just holding somebody's hand can be very helpful as they're going through something very scary. So... Um, therapeutic touch is something that's very delicate. Um, you know, a lot of, um, uh, well, in the early days, Stan Groff talks about how when he learned psychedelic, he learned about uh, Freudian psychoanalysis, there was big debates about whether you could shake hands with your patient or not, whether that would destroy this kind of um, therapeutic context. So um, we um, had in our treatment manual some information about uh, touch and um, we took it out, actually, because it, it is something that requires more training. But um, we do think that uh, touch can be especially important. It's not sexualized. A lot of times it's where pain is, where, where, where emotions come in the body, where there's some kind of pains. We press on it. We exaggerate it. We encourage people. There, there's a lot of somatic release going on. So 
um, I think, I think, um, yeah, this has to be a short answer right now. But um, yes, I think that the issue will remain on the table for for a while. The issue of therapeutic touch within the context of NDMA assisted psychotherapy. I just want to, you know, I want to wrap it up, Rick, and uh, just want to say that uh, very quickly that Maps, your organization, consists of two wings. One is a nonprofit, and the other one is a pharmaceutical corporation. I just want to say that what I call a MAPS Public Benefit Corporation is the most ethical pharmaceutical company in the world. And I hope I'm right. I'm not sure where I am, but I hope I'm right. And so I would really encourage people who are interested in making, uh, contributing to the progress in research, especially in relationship research. If you guys want a, a direct link to a, 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 the, the hottest relationship study that is get, getting set up right now, you can even go to our website at enhancedtherapy.ca and donate. Rick, is there anything else? I, I'm so honored you agreed to talk to me. And is there anything oh, else you want to well, add here? Um, yeah, well, I, yeah, the, the key to scaling this whole thing to, to reach the people it needed is training more therapists. And yeah. so that's why I was just really glad to say yes to, to talking with you, because it, it is really about reaching therapists. Um, I, I do want to say that the benefit corporation, the, the for-profit benefit corporation, is the pharmaceutical arm. We're about 100 people, around two-thirds or actually about 70 people work in the Benefit Corp, the rest in the nonprofit. Um, we we do intend to sell MDMA. We do intend to sell it at a profit, but it'll be uh, uh, maximizing public benefit, not profit, but uh, to supplement the philanthropy because uh, there's an endless number of things that we need to study. Um, but I want to say that the Public Benefit Corporation has only one investor, which is the nonprofit. So the nonprofit is the 100% owner of the for-profit. So whatever profits are made are, are not going to go to me or to my pocket or any other MAP staff. It goes directly to the nonprofit and to our mission. So that that's our corporate structure. Rick, uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this work. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> and this has a great potential. And let's hope that, that it's going to continue moving in a very positive direction with the research support and the support of all the people. At our upcoming conference on November 7, I would love for your closing presentation to talk about the healing potential, the future. I look forward to uh, seeing you in a few days and good luck with everything else, with the results and everything else. Yeah, thank you. Tomorrow is going to be a big, big day. day. <laughs> big day, another big day on November yeah. 3rd. Okay, Rick, okay. all the best to you. Thank you so much. Thank you.